0: In that moment, I decided, hey, you can be defined as a victim of your circumstances, or you can be defined by your response to this accident. Right. And I was like, Michael, what do you want to choose? Door number one or door number two? And I was like, heads or tails. And I was like, I'm going to be defined by how I respond to this accident. This is my opportunity. It's a weird opportunity to have. I didn't sign up for this opportunity, but this is my opportunity in life to show myself, to show my kids, show my family, show others, that you get to be defined by life's events and how you respond to those, and that was a choice I made. Hey everyone, it's Michael O'Brien, CEO and founder of Peloton Coaching and Consulting, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance, or expert knowledge, in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, you can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week I'm bringing you Michael O'Brien. He's the CEO of Peloton uh, Coaching and Consulting. He also survived a nearly fatal cycling accident on July 11, 2001, while on a business trip in New Mexico. Um, So, Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast today to share your story. And I watched your TED talk, and it was very engaging and really cool. So I'm excited to have you on. So let's
0: just start by kind of taking us through that day when you had the accident. Yeah, well, I'm so pumped to be on your podcast. I love it. I've listened to many of your episodes, and thanks, I feel man. pretty privileged just to be part of your um, part of your crew. So it's part of the cool. warriors, yeah, part of the warriors. <laughs> and I just love your story as well. Thanks. So. So yeah, July 11th, 2001, I call that my last bad day. I was out in New Mexico for for the business leaders out there. It's a pretty typical meeting. We went out, out on Monday. We're going to be out there until Friday. And we had a half day on Thursday to do whatever. And a lot of the guys were going to play golf. And I was like, hey, I'm trying to get back into shape, get back into cycling, racing. Because I took some time off and did some running, had a love affair with running. But I had two young girls. and I was like, hey, why don't we get back into cycling? And I had a race coming up that Sunday, so locally here in New Jersey. So I decided to bring my travel bike out and get some miles in. What's a travel bike? So that's a bike that you can collapse down into like a suitcase and check it. And it's cheaper than bringing your full bike out. But it's like a a regular road bike, like when you – well, it, it looks up. like a little bit of a clown bike, to be honest. So it has smaller wheels, and it looks a little funky, but it definitely acts like a bicycle. Okay. And it, it definitely was going to be working out in the hotel gym, right? right. So we've all been at- It's got ho-
1: gears and everything.
0: It's got gears. It's got brakes. It's got it all. Okay. Um, it was actually my buddy's bike, and I was going to try it out because I thought about maybe buying it. Okay. But I definitely wanted to avoid the hotel gym. So I was like, hey, why don't we do this? Bring it out. I'll get a couple miles in before the meeting begins each day, and that Wednesday went out on a ride, and what I was doing was doing a big loop. The hotel was in the middle of nowhere between Albuquerque and Santa Fe, and I found a loop that used the hotel service road and the entrance into the hotel. It was about two miles, so I thought, why not, I'll just do that loop maybe 10 times, get 20 miles in. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. I thought, hey, no traffic. This is going to be great. Right. And on the fourth lap, I was coming around a Bend, and a Ford Explorer was right in my lane coming right at me, and I could not react fast enough. And he hit me head on. I remember the sound of me hitting his grill, the sound of me getting flipped up and going into the windshield, and the screech of his brakes the sound I made, and then I fell off the hood of his truck when it came to a screeching halt. In the next few minutes, I don't remember anything until the EMTs came. So
1: you don't remember if he, like, got out of the car and was like, holy shit, like, I just have, you know, I just hit
0: someone. Well, he he definitely had a holy shit moment. I don't remember (laughs) all that. So what happened is in those five minutes – other traffic was coming up. So was, this is like a two-lane road, or it was a small two-lane road. It was a the service road in the back of the hotel. So
1: maybe he th- might have thought like no
0: one would be on there. Or? Well, that's what he thought. He's like, well, who's going to be on this, on road? this yeah. road at six a.m. in the morning? No one ever rides back here. And he was clearly speeding. He was going about forty miles an hour. Speed limit on the road was twenty-five. It was again one of those smaller roads that didn't have like a double yellow line it had one yellow line okay yeah you know those type of roads yeah sketchy road sketchy Sketchy road and he just was cutting the apex and i was right there and he was right there hey if i had 10 seconds either way right 10 seconds one way i would have missed him 10 seconds the other way it could have been a completely different story for me right so seconds matters right you know matter in life And the people coming up behind, because he actually worked at the hotel. Oh, okay, he's an employee. Employee had a revoked driver's license. Do you know from what, or yeah, from DUIs in his past. But he wasn't under the influence. No, and so the interesting thing about this whole case is that the hotel was on tribal property, right, Native American land, and so his DUIs were actually off tribal property and actually in the state of New Mexico. Okay, so and. New Mexico actually has a pretty high DUI rate when I learned a lot about New Mexico, (laughs) right? More than I ever wanted to know, to be quite honest, no offense to anyone from New Mexico that may be listening. And the hotel employees that came up behind actually called nine one one. And I got really lucky that there were EMTs at the hotel. So So they stay in there. They actually worked there. So they came and they, they were my first responders. And the driver actually, he was in shock. So when I hit his windshield, and you can see from the photos. I'll on my, put, yeah,
1: if you can give me those photos, I'll put yeah. it on the show notes, yeah.
0: So people will see that also from my TED Talk. I put a hole in the windshield. Yeah, it's substantial. Yes, And so he had glass in his face, and he was in shock. So he definitely got out of the car to get his medical treatment. And, he yeah, he probably had an, oh, shit, you know, I just stained my boxer short type of moment. Yeah. Like, what the hell just happened? Right. And I was just lying there, unable to move. And were you wearing a helmet? Yeah, definitely. So I, the last thing I see now when I ride my bike is that helmet. So I have it up and sort of touch that helmet before every ride now. That like helmet. A, like a trophy. Like a trophy. And a it, reminder. Absolutely. Still has some of the glass in it. Has all the blood still on it. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit of a, it's a vivid reminder of what happened. Right. right? And, um, yeah, so that helmet definitely saved saved my life, right? That could have been, again, a completely different story if I didn't have a helmet on.
1: Right. I was just uh, in San Diego for a business trip, and I took an Uber to the zoo. And, yep. and uh, our kid, I our driver, we were talking to him, and he was like, I got to know him a little bit, and I, I found out he was into skateboarding. Yeah. And the first thing I asked him, I was like, oh, you wear a helmet? He's like, no, not really. He's like, yeah. only if I have to. Like, if I'm in a competition, I'm like, Dude, like I didn't want to go through my whole spiel and be like, you know, give my whole concussion thing. I almost died. Like, I'm like, but before I left the car, all I said was wear a helmet. That's all I said. Well,
0: I tell a lot, you know, so when I ride my bike now and I'll see a mom or a dad riding with their child and the child has a helmet, but mom and dad doesn't. I'm like, I ride past. I'm like, you should really wear a helmet. Right. And then if they say something, I say, well, here's why. Yeah. Right. So the one thing I didn't have though, is I didn't have my road ID. Right back then, so this is 2001, Road ID was out, but wasn't as popular as it is now. So I didn't have any identification with me. So that's another thing I stress to people is get a Road ID in case something tragic happens. So until my wife was able to fly out to Albuquerque, that's where they took me. I was known as trauma patient Mango
1: because no one could like confirm who you were.
0: Yeah. So even though, Did you have I your wallet or no. So I didn't normally I didn't. I didn't ride with that. I was like, right. I'm going on the hotel property road. Whenever, is, whenever I go for
1: a bike ride around here, I always like stick my license like in my little pouch or whatever. Yeah. Is that like the same thing? or? Well,
0: that definitely helps. So the road ID is a bracelet I wear, has my phone number on it, actually it has my wife's phone number on it. Okay. My name and all that stuff like that. So when the EMTs came to me to start giving me first aid, I came out of my like, Funk and I was able to tell him like, Hey, I'm Michael O'Brien. I think I was mumbling and wasn't clear, and I probably gave my home phone number incorrectly a few times, so that was a bit of a problem. But um, but yeah, having a road ID to any cyclist or runner out there, super uber important. They're not that expensive, but they can be life saving.
1: Cool, that's a good tip. Yeah. Um, so what were your? What was the extent of your injuries? You know, after they came
0: on the scene and. Were you airlifted? So I was airlifted, yeah, because I was 45 minutes uh, ambulance drive away from the University of New Mexico at Albuquerque. Airlifted the medevac, 19 minutes. So I broke my right shoulder, my right femur, my right tibia. The left femur shattered. The bone was popping out. Oh, wow. Out of your skin? Yeah. So it was pretty gruesome. And so when the femur shattered, it lacerated my femoral artery. And that's what made it a life and death touch and go situation because I was basically bleeding quite, quite significantly in the middle of the desert. So
1: how did they approach like stopping that bleeding?
0: Well, they put a tourniquet on my leg. Okay. Right. And so they didn't necessarily know the full extent until I got to the hospital. So they worked on my left leg and they noticed like, well, the blood flow is not that great. Actually the leg was cold. And so they went in and like, wow, we, we have a vascular injury and they had to do a fem popliteal artery bypass graph. And when the surgery ended, it was about 12 hours in the OR. When they came out to tell my wife, they said, hey, your husband's been in a very bad accident. We did the best we could. The next 48 hours are going to be really critical. And it's all because of the artery or? It's all because of the artery. And it was sort of like, hey, can you know, risk of infection. I was out there for a while, right? So was everything going to take? And then also, was I going to be able to keep the leg? So there was a question about life and death for a while. And then the big question became risk of infection, um, other trauma that they didn't pick up, right? It's also
1: above the knee too. Like above above yeah. the
0: knee. And would I lose would I lose the leg? Right. Because I didn't have, I didn't have sufficient blood flow down there for a number of hours. And they told me like, Hey, if you were older, 10 years older, or if you weren't in shape, you probably would have bled out by the time you got to the hospital. Oh, wow. So for like those – What does that
1: have to do with anything? Just because you have well, more blood or –
0: Well, no, just because I had a good um, peripheral arterial arterial system. That's a tongue twister. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, this late hour of the day, right? <laughs> so um, basically I had um, pretty good blood flow all around, right? Because as you usually you know as an athlete, you know, you, you uh, stress the body and you start building up um, – circulation ability that's above your average dude or okay. do that. So that, that definitely helps. So being in shape right in that moment um, saved my life. Okay. Yeah. And so at that point they kind of, they fix
1: you up a little bit You're and then, then what you're in like traction. So like, what was the next <laughs> yeah. may, maybe explain like the next week or whatever, Yeah. So,
0: the so, the first surgery, 12 hours, they could only, they only had enough time to really fix my left leg. So keep in mind, my right leg is broken in multiple places. Wait, so your surgery
1: took 12 hours?
0: Yeah, I was basically, yeah. So, and then when they told my wife to come out, so keep in mind, back home in New Jersey, I have a three and a half year old daughter and a seven month old daughter. They call my wife and said, hey, Michael's been in an accident. You got to get out here. And she's like, really, like I got like things are happening here. You know, we got a busy household and like patch him up and send him back home. He's crashed before. Right. So as a cyclist, you're bound to crash. So patch him up and get him back on the plane. And they're like, no, you really got to come out. And so they didn't really tell her how bad I was hurt. I don't think they really knew. So she came out and she brought me a couple of cookies and was like, Hey, Michael, like these cookies in recovery. And when she got to the hospital, I was still in the OR and getting to Albuquerque from Newark is tough because you got to go to Houston. Then you got to go to Albuquerque. It's a and long trip. And she still
1: beat you out of surgery?
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Damn. Uh, so it was a pretty long day for all of us. So I went to the ICU. So in traction, right leg was in traction, left leg was all bandaged up the right shoulder. They didn't do anything to fix that. And the next four days in the ICU and my respiratory and my breathing, all that stuff was coming back into fine shape, the risk of infection. We were like feeling pretty good. And then they moved me to the orthopedic wing of the hospital. And for the next yeah, basically week, I was there. And a few days after going into the ortho wing, they fixed my right leg. So I left New Mexico about 10, 11 days after my accident with a femur rod in my left femur and also a femur rod in my right femur. And I had 12 screws that you would get at Home Depot securing the rod. And I had about eight, eight screws in my right leg fixing the tibia and fixing the femur.
1: Do you still have those in there today or?
0: So I have the rod in my right femur. They took the femur rod of the left leg out. Why I, is
1: that? Wasn't that the more badly injured one?
0: That was the more badly injured. But the thing is that what they predicted coming out of the hospital is that I would have a full knee replacement in the left leg five years after the trauma and my right leg 10 years after the trauma. For what reason? Just because I was so badly hurt and they were like, well, have, you know, you you People are getting older anyway, right? Yeah. So they're like, you're compromised. So you're probably going to have to have a knee replacement in Because, both like, flexions.
1: muscularly, like, your joints won't move the same way. Yeah,
0: and they don't. And they, like, they'll wear differently. They'll wear, they wear differently. Good news is n- this July will be 16 years, and I still have both of my original knees. How, how is the pain level in them? Actually, I don't have pain. If I feel anything, I feel stiffness. Okay. So, but they took the femur rod out. Because they wanted to prep for a possible knee replacement and they, they knew they couldn't do the knee replacement with the femur rod in.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you were racing at this point in time. I um, was getting back into racing. So So I was
0: racing all through college and then, um, early on and I did the Boston marathon. I did the Marine Corps marathon and I, in doing some biathlons or duathlons, and I wanted to get back into just pure bike racing as my kids were starting to get a little bit older.
1: Okay. So what were like your thoughts, feeling and, feelings and emotions kind of with this prognosis? Like what did the doctors tell you? Uh, like, could you get yeah. up back on the bike again? You know, like, What was going through your head at this point in time?
0: Well, so when I was waiting for the medevac, there was a couple things that I told myself and you heard some of them on the Ted talk. I was like, one, I asked the EMT is like, how's my bike? Which some <laughs> is something that probably only another cyclist who's listening couldn't appreciate. And, would find humorous even though it was the the travel bike even the travel bike i was like i was my bike and I, <laughs> I tend to use humor to cut tension and i was trying to cut a lot of tension and i was like i didn't have a lot of knock knock jokes to go to <laughs> so i was like hey this sounds like a pretty good joke but i told myself like if i lived and i knew my life was at risk not by what the emts were saying but just their body language their energy and i knew i was you know as badly hurt as I had ever been in my life. And I said, if I live life is going to be different, right? Cause I was, I was your typical dude working as a marketing director, trying to juggle being married, having two young kids and the whole nine yards. Right. Yeah. And I was sort of chasing happiness. And what I learned along the way is that you can't chase happiness. You have to sort of just be happy. And I was really stressed. And I knew that there was something more to life than what I was having. My life wasn't bad. It just wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. Okay. And I um, I got out of the ICU and the doctors started telling me about my accident and the extent of my injuries. And they basically said, listen, you're going to have a life of compromise. You're going to have a life of dependency, right? they were already telling me about knee replacements and this and how badly injured I was. And there was some doubt if I was going to be you know, into sports again, certainly question if I would ever get back on the bike. They're like, you're lucky to be alive. You should be thankful. And I'm like, I want more out of life than that. And I got really dark pretty quickly. So they were influencing what, how I saw the world, right? Sort of in the spirit of we go where our eyes go. I was, right. I was starting to see life in a very dark way. And then I... When they planted that seed, then I, I could see all my limitations so clearly. I'm like, oh, I can't do that. Oh, my shoulder hurts. This hurts. Oh. And I was getting angry, frustrated. I would cry a lot because I was just so frustrated. The accident shouldn't have happened. I kept on repeating to myself. That was where the frustration lied or yeah, frustration was just, with like your situation? I think a lot of the frustration that it shouldn't have happened, right? I was, I was doing everything right that day. Like I was in the right place on the road. I had a light on. I had bright color clothing. I had like yellow shoes, a yellow jersey. I was like as far right on the road as possible. He shouldn't have been driving because he had a revoked license. So I thought the world was totally unfair. And I was angry and mad about that. And I was revengeful. I was like, I'm going to get back at this guy. And I'd be stewing in my hospital bed, unable to move. I had to like, take a dump and shit on a bedpan and and so and then all of a sudden my things bowel, you don't
1: think about yeah yeah
0: all of a sudden my bowel movements were the most important thing in the world i'm like holy cow like you know and my parents came out and they're like have you pooped yet today and i'm like <laughs> i'm like why is get my, one of those shirts to say I poop today yeah exactly so it was it was rough and i was I was pretty mad for a while until actually I came back to New Jersey and got to Kessler's Institute for Rehabilitation.
1: All right. Um, before we get there, like when you say revenge, like you wanted to like kill this guy or like what? No, I
0: wasn't like that. I'm not that like crazy. You so. said dark. So. Yeah, it was pretty – How dark? <laughs> I, was, I just wanted him to feel – I wanted him to feel the pain I was feeling. And I, and I didn't necessarily have a like – a full scheme, but I just was like, Man, you know, you harm me, I'm gonna harm you, right? Right. An eye for an eye, you know, and that was sort of my mentality. So I was like, how can I get back at this guy? Like he took part of my life, right? Yeah. And and my girls aren't gonna know their dad in the same way. Mm-hmm. So what can I do to get back at him? And and it was really, as I mentioned just a second ago, very much an eye for an eye. And right that's a pretty dark place to live. And I would try to put on a happy face. Like when people would come and visit, be like, yeah, we have opportunity. But deep down inside, I was like, this sucks. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. This is so fucking unfair. I'm like, I'm in, and it took, uh, took a lot of effort to get out of it. But then I had a, you know, I had my sort of aha moment later to help me get out of that. But in that moment, yeah, I just, I wanted to get back at him, not in a very specific way, but just in, just in a general way.
1: You know, the movie, uh, uh, hangover. Yeah. I I thought of like,
0: you're going to fuck on me. Yeah. Like, yeah. exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I was like, you, and, and then have hey, you ever talked to him? Uh, so there was actually a traffic court case and we went back to the uh, tribal court, the Pueblo. And what I, you know, I learned, you know, it's perspective matters. Right. So, Um, the native American population in in the U S you know, they don't, they don't live a lifestyle of the rich and famous. It was poor. The courthouse was poor. He didn't really have much and he was going through a lot. You know, he, he wasn't supposed to be driving and he, you know, he's human. He, he understood that he harmed someone. He, he didn't necessarily articulate his sorrow and his, you know, and, Asked for forgiveness, maybe in the way that I wanted him to. But over time, I realized that he was hurting too in his own way. And I got to a point years later where I forgave him for the accident, not because he necessarily deserved the forgiveness, but I deserved it because if I still carried around the anger towards him,
1: all that energy, yeah,
0: all that energy, I was not going to be the best version of myself. All right. And so I let that go. And when I let that go, I got to a different level, which was cool.
1: And you say you let that go, but like how? Like you just woke up one day and you're like, "I forgive him." Or No,
0: actually. So this this took a while. So I gave I forgave him on a lot of it, you know, over the first few years of the recovery. But in 2012, we took a family vacation to Europe. And we had, we went to Auschwitz-Birkenau, the concentration camp, and we got a private, we got a group tour, it was sort of private, but a a group of about 50 to 75 people by a Holocaust survivor. She was a twin, Eva Kor. She actually lives in Terre Haute, Indiana, and her family was sent to Birkenau and outside of um, Krakow. And during the tour, someone asked her, like, well, do you still hate the Germans, the Nazis? Right. And I was like, no. she's definitely gonna. She's definitely going to say yes, of course, right? Because yeah. I still had a little bit of this energy towards this driver. Yeah, you could relate a little bit yeah. in some respect, it, yeah. Yeah. It, I it, know what you mean. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, And she's like, no, I forgave them. Not because they deserve forgiveness, but because I did. So I let that go because if I carried around all the energy of the hatred I wasn't going to be living the life I wanted to live in so many words or less. And I was like, I was sitting there. It's the, you know, it's the middle of nowhere, Poland in this concentration camp. That's just, just filled with death. And I'm like, holy shit. Like if she can do that, like I can like get your acting gear, O'Brien, like, right. Hey, but sometimes it takes that it takes time. Like it's not going to happen. I'm like, So I let go of the remaining part of it. So, it was a bit of a journey for me. And I think life is that way. Like life is not linear. It's not like you turn the light switch on the rise. And it, throughout my recovery, I had massive steps forward and then like I took massive steps backwards. And yeah. then, but most of my steps have been forward and, and that's just how life is. Mm-hmm. And um, that's part of the journey. Yeah. And I like that too. And like in terms
1: of, like I, I struggle with uh, girl issues like yeah. throughout my recovery from like my head injury and stuff. And it like killed me. But you, like you said, like don't forgive them like for what they did. Forgive them for you.
0: Right. Yeah. I like that. And it's, um, and you, you read, you know, I started reading up about forgiveness more and more and, and there's some real power to that. You know, yeah. sometimes it's, it's hard to forgive the person for the what they did and, yeah. you know, for them personally, but we can forgive, forgive them for ourselves so we can move on, right? right? And, you know, things happen in life. Yeah. And if we carry around all of our baggage, that's a pretty big backpack by the time you get into your 30s and 40s and 50s. And it just takes away from being your best version of yourself, I believe.
1: My boy Bill Anthes knows all about that from... Episode yep. 54, yeah. Between
0: the Ears. Absolutely. Um, it's a lot of that talk. Yep. And that talk either propels us forward or holds us back. Yep.
1: I agree 100%. Yep. So I know we kind of went on a tangent there. No problem. But now we're back at Kessler Rehab in New Jersey. Um, yep. So can you kind of take us through that phase of your um, recovery and, like, when that was in relation to your injury?
0: Yeah. So I left New Mexico because my oldest stayed back. With some friends, and we wanted to get back to we wanted to get back to New Jersey. So I flew back to New Jersey in an air ambulance. So they told me, oh, you're gonna fly back in a private jet, and I was like, oh, rock star, that's cool, yeah, yeah, like Lear jet, shag carpeting, like gin, <laughs> you know, gin and tonics, <laughs> and it was anything but that. Um, so I flew into Teeterboro, so the airport of the famous around here, and I went to Hackensack, and I had my sec, uh, well, third surgery to do my skin grafts because I had to cut these things called fasciotomies because I needed so much blood product that they needed room for my leg to expand. So fasciotomies right. are basically open wounds uh, Open wounds, and they do skin graft surgeries to patch them back like up. People like
1: compartment syndrome, right? Yeah, and
0: so that was a big worry for me just because I lost so much blood. So I was there for a while. I had to let an infection sort of clear up. They did the surgery and then I went to Kessler and for inpatient. And they started working on getting my strength back. Uh, I did occupational therapy, you know, to work on things around the house and also did physical therapy. And I still didn't have clearance to actually put full weight on my legs. So a big moment, well, a couple of big moments came. So at one point in the month, now this is like later in August. So I got hit in July 11th, 2001. Later in August, I'm um, looking around. It's one morning during physical my physical rehabilitation therapy. And I sort of just panned the room. And I started noticing like some of the people getting better, some of the people not getting better. And I was like, you know what? Their attitude's making a big difference as to whether or not they're getting better or not. And in that moment, I was like, you know what? If you're going to be the best husband, you know, father, leader, person that you can become, you got to show up differently. You got to like lose the negativity and show up with like an attitude of what you still had and approach this as if, you know, as if it was your job. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and to maximize your recovery because pissing and moaning about it ain't making you better. And it was a moment that felt like it lasted 15 minutes and it probably only lasted 15 seconds, but it was a decision in that moment that I was going to start showing up better. And I was going to put in a different uh, amount of effort and really work on my mindset and work on my belief systems. So that was a huge, that was a huge moment in the recovery. It was a sort of a, a shift or a pivot as I call it. Okay. And that was like,
1: you recognized that there are certain people in this rehabilitation center that were like feeling bad for themselves and stuff. And you see that their progress was kind of like staying stagnant. Maybe. So,
0: yeah. We're either declining or they're just plateauing. And in that moment, I decided, Hey, you can be defined as a victim of your circumstances, or you can be defined by your response to this accident. Right. And I was like, Michael, what do you want to choose? Door number one or door number two? And I was like, heads or tails. I was like, I'm going to be defined by how I respond to this accident. This is my opportunity. It's a weird opportunity to have. I didn't sign up for this opportunity, but this is my opportunity in life. To show myself, to show my kids, to show my family, show others, that you get to be defined by life's events and how you respond to those. And that was a choice I made.
1: Cool. So at some point you met our friend Laura Fucci. Yes. A physical therapist and she connected us for this
0: interview. So shout out to Laura. Shout out to Laura. She's huge. She's um, huge, huge player in my Peloton to get me to where I am today. Cool.
1: So can you kind of describe that relationship and how she kind of pushed you forward?
0: Yeah. So I eventually left inpatient Kessler and I had to have another surgery because one of the things I wanted to do was get back on the bike. And getting back on the bike was really, for me, it was a pursuit just to have just to have life be normal again, right? I'd spent, you know, I, I couldn't take a shower the normal way. I couldn't use the bathroom the normal way. But I thought like, I mean, slowly but surely, I was gaining those back. But I was like, "Hey, maybe riding my bike—that was something that gave me a lot of pleasure, right?" And to me, the bike was about freedom, independence, right. chance to explore. And too. you
1: vocalized this too, Laura.
0: Well, we talked about sports in general, and but this was this was something sort of internal. And so I needed this big surgery to get the left knee to bend enough. Cause it wasn't bending enough for me to ride my bike. So to ride your bike, you need at least 95 degrees of flexion. And my knee was only bending like about 75 degrees. Okay. So it was a pretty risky surgery no- knowing that I had a bypass graph in there. So they went in, they nicked the bypass graph. It could be a uh, sort of another bad day. Right. Right. So I came back out of that surgery and Laura was my physical therapist and she got to work. And I just loved, I loved the fact that she had this beautiful mixture of being a cheerleader and a button pusher and a challenger and she was compassionate and she worked me, right. And she wasn't going to let me quit. And she was like, if I gave her X, she gave me X plus and really pushed me. She introduced me to this horrible squat exercise called 13 by 13s, which basically you got to like count, uh, do a squat down count three, up count three. Okay. So you do 13 reps. So it's 78 seconds that you're under, under stress, stress yeah. and then you rest for 42 and then you do another set and you try to do 13 by 13 and that was a way to build up my strength. I still do them today and I still think fondly of Laura, even though it was torture <laughs> in the moment. But she had a big, um, it was a big moment for us when she basically challenged me to get back on the bike. And I was getting better, I had the right flexion, and I wanted to get back in the bike, but I was starting to get a little nervous. I was sort of cool with the comfort zone I was in. And it's sort of like when you're on a diet, you you want to get on the scale, but you don't want to get on the scale, Right. right? You don't want to see how far you still have to go. And for me, the bike was a lot like that. Yeah, I was a little bit nervous getting back on the road, but mainly I was like, I know I've made a lot of progress intellectually, but I don't want to see how much more progress I have in front of me because I felt like, God, it's been so tough just to get to this point. And she, in so many words or less said, hey, if you don't get back on the bike this weekend, you can't come back to therapy. And I was like, (laughs) she would say that. (laughs) I was like, "What? you can't, you can't do that. Like I'm the, I'm the patient. Like, I'm paying for this. And she's like, No, I sort of can do that. And <laughs> and, and I get pictures and, and I was like, huh? And I was like, No, you can't do that. And I was starting to get a little pissed. And you know what? Um, that weekend I got back on the bike. And because I, I love going to work out. Like going to a physical rehab was like a sort of having a personal trainer and a and a cheerleader and a coach and all that jazz. It was cool. Um, it was torture. It was painful, but there was something that I loved about the struggle, right? The practice and getting back on the bike was like this, this edge. And so like any great coach, any great motivator, they know, like, I gotta, I gotta push my people past the edge outside their comfort zone so they can grow and get stronger and get faster and just become, um, have more wisdom. And that's what she did. And she knew what button to push. And I was like, screw you. I'm like, I mean, yeah, I'm going to get back on the bike. Not because you said so, because <laughs> I want to. Yeah. And I uh, got back on the bike that that weekend. We drove to an industrial park where they would have Thursday night bike races. And I did a few laps around the industrial park. And then eventually I got back on the road that, that morning. And I was riding down the road in a big ford uh suv came up behind me and i was like really universe you're going to send me this you know you couldn't send me like a fiat or like <laughs> a smart car so they sent me a big old big old ass suv and it was white and i was like holy cow and i just grabbed the handlebars and held my breath and it passed and i exhaled and i was like all right i'm going to be okay being on the road again right and, and then that was sort of the beginning. So I got back on the bike, I was choppy, you know, my leg length difference. Cause I have a leg length difference to this day, Yeah. to this day. And so I was choppy on the bike. My pedal stroke was all off. My fitness was horrible, uh, but I got back riding I was like, all right, I can do this. And it, it became that next level, little taste of the next level, right? Little taste of the next level. And then it was like, all right, now you gotta get, now you gotta get going. Cool. I have a game plan. And so she was instrumental in making that happen.
1: How do you combat like your leg limb length difference now as a, when you cycle?
0: So I have an extra, I have some shims on my cleat Okay. that makes up the leg length. Cool. Yeah. yeah. i was just curious. Yeah. So uh, I've done like bike fits uh, in Brooklyn, out in Boulder uh, just to dial in my, 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 you know, my, my fit on the bike Uh, Because I have to, I'm sort of Mr. Millimeter. Like if I'm off by just a little bit, I notice it. Goldilocks. You bet. Um, All right. So how did your
1: recovery and your injury kind of change your perspective on life going forward?
0: Well, so I called that my last bad day for a reason. So it helped me with perspective that I can find the goodness in things and sort of this attitude of abundance doesn't mean that I come walking around like happy all the time and it's unicorns and rainbows because those people are psychotic, (laughs) right? Because bad things do happen during my day, right? I just can rationalize and digest them and pivot out of them faster now than ever before because I have perspective, I have something to compare it to. And I also know that, hey, every day I'm on this planet, every day I'm with my girls and my wife, is a great day. Every day I get to ride my bike is an awesome day. You know, some rides stink. Like on Monday I had a bike ride and it was like, okay, as far as like a ride in itself, but it was great that I was out, right? And so I have a greater appreciation for what I have, right? And we live in a society that focuses in on loss or lack. right? And I try to focus in on what I have. Just like you said before, we go where our eyes go, right? Absolutely, and I, love and I tried to do – so I did that coming back into work. It doesn't mean that I didn't have, you know, some tough days, but that was, you know, I have perspective of what a bad day really is like. Right. And I can rationalize it and, and put it into, into perspective.
1: Great stuff. Yeah. Um, what about spiritually? Like how does your – has your injury changed you
0: spiritually at all? Like, Well, I grew up – Um, in a pretty Catholic family. And so I sort of got out of like organized religion when I was a teenager. And I think a lot of teenagers sort of go through that sense of exploration as far as what it means to be on this planet. So I am spiritual in the sense of like, Hey, our energy is out there and how we show up does matter. There's a ripple effect, a cascading effect and from a spirituality place in terms of like, what's your purpose What's your mission? What are your values? Yeah, I'm probably stronger in that sense of spirituality, and but really around the energy piece as well. So I think that's where it shows up for me. I'm I'm still not very religious, and you know a lot of people say, "Hey, you know, God has a plan for you," and right. I res- I respect where they're coming from. I I don't know if he does or she does. I don't know, but I know that how I show up, how we all show up, there's an energy to that. And that energy is cascading. So when we show up in a compassionate, loving flow way, things get easier. When we show up in a catabolic, hey, in order for me to win, you have to lose way, that that also spreads. And we have a lot more of that in society today than we really should. And so from an energetic spirituality point of view, I try to focus in on that.
1: Cool. I like that. Uh, Okay. So do you have like safety tips for cyclists going forward to kind of prevent You know, I mean, it sounds like you did all the safety things that you could have done at the time. But like, what do you tell cyclists today to kind of prevent getting hit by cars? Because, I mean, I go out for a bike ride a couple of days a week and like the whole entire time I'm like nervous. I got flashing lights and like all sorts of I'm still
0: scared that someone's going to be texting or whatever. Well, yeah, there's definitely a lot of people texting and a lot of people are just distracted in life nowadays. Right. Because we have a lot of things to distract us. I think one of the tips I give to all cyclists is do all that you can do to be visible. So lights work, uh, clothing works, right? So any clothing that is on your moving parts, like your shoes and your legs. And, and I have a bright orange helmet by POC. I have orange shoes, orange is sort of my color. So I try to do all that. So I have a front light and I have a rear light. You know, I try to ride smart. I try to ride defensively, but also know when I have to ride sort of aggressively to sort of keep my position on the road. I think the big thing too for cyclists is that we need to model the way, right? We, we sometimes are part of the problem, to be honest. Like we blow through lights, we, we curse at drivers, and there's just all this big argument. And we're, what we're doing is we're just shouting at each other. And we have enough of that in society where we just talk at each other, not talking with each other. And and that's a problem. So when we shout like, hey, fuck you to a driver who has their kids in the back, we're not necessarily role modeling the best behavior for all other cyclists. When we blow through a red light or a four-way stop when there's a whole bunch of cars there, that's not good role modeling. I know it sort of disrupts our workout, but in the grander scheme, like, you know, we're not that five seconds that we have to wait, isn't going to make or break how fast we are. Right. right. You're so, setting the tone. We're setting the tone. And, and for drivers out there, you know, for them to say, Hey, listen, the fight's unfair, right? You're in a one ton vehicle, unless you're driving one of those smart cars. <laughs> right. And the cyclist is, you know, they got a bunch of Lycra on and a 15 pound, 16 pound carbon bike. Right. It's, the fight is like one's a gun and one's a rock, right? It's, it's an unfair fight. And, you know, if you're patient, you can get around the cyclist, right? And so to the cyclists out there, be smart about how much road you take up, right? Sometimes, you know, I've been in rides around the area where we're four abreast, five abreast, and it's like, well, that's not winning any fans either, right? right. So I think both groups can be a little bit smarter, a little bit more patient, and for the motorists out there to realize the cyclist you're about to pass, that's someone's son or daughter, husband or wife, brother or sister. They're your neighbor. They're someone you work with. You know, for me, I you know, I was someone's neighbor. I was I was a dude in New Jersey just trying to be the best damn father husband leader I could be. I wasn't looking to be famous. I wasn't looking to get on a whole bunch of podcasts. I just wanted to have a good life. And 99% of the cyclists that motorists pass, that's all they're looking to do. They're looking to get healthy, go out for a bike ride, go back and have a beer with their buddies. Right. And if we can all just slow the fuck down and be patient with one another, I think we'd be better off not only on the roads, but just in society in general. Would you say
1: that you kind of adopt or adopted that mentality after the injury like what were you like before the injury I know you're like a corporate big yeah. wig right so like did were you the same guy who was like going 100 miles an hour constantly or
0: well I wasn't I was aiming to be a corporate big wig uh, so I was a director and a marketing director for a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey which, sounds like a big wig to me but. yeah so <laughs> um I but I definitely you know I was driven um, but I was I was I was rushing around. I was, hey, I was like your typical dude with, you know, a really great marriage, an awesome wife, beautiful, intelligent, kind. But we had two young kids under four. I had a demanding job that would take me, you know, take my attention for 70 hours a week. And I was trying to also be healthy. And I was trying to do all that. And and so I was definitely stressed, you know, I probably wasn't sleeping as much as I should. It was, it was all that I was on, I was on email. This is back before iPhones. So all there were, were Blackberries, okay. Blackberries, yeah, I had one. But, I, but I was on that all the time. So I was, and I wasn't necessarily, you know, I wasn't obeying every traffic law when it comes to riding my bike. I wasn't the role model that, you know, I proclaim to be right now talking to you. And, um, you know, so I wasn't, I wasn't totally off. It wasn't like I have this story, like back in 2001, my life was miserable. I was living in a trailer down by the river. Right. So it wasn't, I w I didn't have that. I had a pretty good life. Yeah. Right. Um, you looked on LinkedIn, it was a pretty good profile. I, you know, a great marriage, beautiful two girls that were very charming and just little, and, but I knew I wanted more than that I wanted some peace and and I was searching for that and I wanted to be happier and I was trying to chase the happiness and I think that's one of the big things that's different today than back then is that I realized and this is for all the listeners you can't chase happiness you, you you can catch it, but then it's fleeting Then it goes away. Right, So it's never enough. you can buy the new bike, you can buy the new car, you can get the promotion and you're happy in the moment, but then you get it and you're know, like, well, uh, now there's something else to chase. And my advice, and this is the advice I give to my clients, is just decide to be happy and do the things that happy people do. Like appreciating what you have, expressing gratitude, you know, sharing joy. And you know what? When that happens, you actually get more happiness. You know? I like that. You, yeah. get ha- you get happier. So instead of sort of um, doing, having, being, you just be. And you actually get more of what you're looking for when you just show up and do those things. So I think that's probably one of the big differences between me back before my last bad day and me now.
1: I like it. Um, so did you ever get back into – uh, racing.
0: Yeah. So, so what, what was that like feeling like when you finally like made it back? It was so freaking cool. Um, you know, I was training and I did some events. So I did the Lance Armstrong charity event, uh, back in 2003. This is before his Oprah moment. Right. Okay. So, but I used, you know, back then. So got a fast uh, flashback to that time period. Lance was making his comeback. He wrote his book, not about the bike. And a lot of people gave me copies of his book. And I used his book as motivation. I said, if I ever get back on the bike, I'm going to give back to his cause. And I raised like $12,000. That's legit. That was pretty legit. And uh, Laura was a big contributor. So I thanked her so much. And it actually gave me a little bit of a private ride with Lance and an autographed jersey. That was pretty cool. Yeah,
1: really cool. Yeah. yeah.
0: So um, so I did his 100-mile ride. That was the first century back from my accident. And again, that was like October 2003. And then a few years later, I decided, hey, I'm going to get back into racing. So I went back to that place where I had my first ride after my accident, that little industrial park where they would have Thursday night Criterium races. It was like a one-mile loop. What's and, a
1: Criterium race?
0: Uh, criterium race is basically you take a, a small loop of a mile or less. Sometimes they're a little bit longer than a mile. And the race can either be timed or miles, but you just do the loop. Okay. You know, and so this particular race is 45 minutes. And, you know, the race is, you know, they run for 45 minutes and they do two more laps. And then after the two laps, that's the finish. Okay. So I went back there and I did my first Thursday night race and it felt so good to be back racing. You know, I, I sort of hung back, you know, I wasn't in the mix because I didn't want to crash and risk another injury but it just felt good to feel the speed of racing and the wind and the adrenaline rush you get when you compete it yep. just felt really good and and i still race to this day in fact on sunday i'll do the new jersey state masters road race it'll be 75 miles it's down in blueberry country of new jersey okay so i'll go down there i'll mix it up pin a number on and then afterwards i'll get a nice big ass blueberry milkshake as a little treat. That sounds really good, actually. Yeah, it's pretty. It's, it's like, it's the reason I race, man. Like the, the milkshake? Yeah, because the thing is, is that, hey, I'm 16 years older. I, I don't take as many risks as I once did riding my bike, right. racing my bike. I just want to pin a number on and mix it up and feel feel good about it. Right. And, hey, a little milkshake. That's pretty cool. At my age, it's not like Garmin or Cannondale are calling me for a sponsorship. <sighs> So I try to find the joys of the little things in life, right? Cool.
1: So speaking of like not pushing it too hard or like putting yourself in danger, can you kind of explain to the audience like what a Peloton is?
0: Yeah. So I have to explain a lot sometimes to my corporate clients. They're like, what is a Peloton? And they Google it. So a Peloton is a French word and it's basically a group of riders in a ride or a race. So think of the Tour de France when you see all the cyclists go through the country roads of France. That's a Peloton. Um, If you're out driving around on the weekend and there's a group of cyclists, that's a Peloton. Right, it's the the group. It's the the group. And so there is a, it's sort of like a tribe. So it's my metaphor to a tribe or a network or a culture or a team. And for a Peloton to go down the road as fast as possible and as safe as possible, you need all the qualities you need at work. You need a leader, right? You need to share the load, right? Because there's drafting involved and you share the responsibility. You got to have great communication, right? To point out when you're turning a road hazard, you need that collaboration. You need trust because you're inches away from one another. So you need all these like qualities that you need in the workplace. Okay. And I came up with Peloton as the name of my company when I was recovering from my accident, I was like, Peloton, that would be an awesome name for a company. <laughs> and I'm like, one day I'm going to be a coach and I'm going to call it Peloton Coaching and Consulting. And because my network, my tribe, if you will, Laura, part of my Peloton, you know, that helps all of us move down the road as fast as possible.
1: It's a cool metaphor. I really like that. Yeah.
0: And, in, in, you know, it's a little bit different than your average bear. A lot of people talk about tribes, you know, which is. Hey, really cool. I talk about tribes too, but for me, a Peloton is something special, you know, cause you, um, you gotta just be together right. and, and you're faster together than you are separately. And I think we can do so much more in this, in this world, in this country, if we start working together as opposed to fighting each other.
1: So cool, dude. I like that. Yeah. Um, so While we're on the topic, can you kind of tell the audience like what you do in your business? Like I know you work with like corporate leaders and so just to kind of, while we're on the topic, we'll
0: explain that. Sure. So I help corporate leaders from director to C-suite leaders. A lot of them are sales and marketing people because my background before I got into coaching was sales and marketing. I was a VP of sales and marketing for a Japanese multinational pharmaceutical company based in Tokyo, but also based here in New Jersey. So I sort of speak the language of those commercial leaders. So work with like VPs of sales, chief operating officers, CEOs, directors, if you will. And many of them are guys and gals that want to get better, right? Just like someone in sports, right? We want to get to the next level. And what got them there isn't necessarily going to get them there, right? Because sometimes you got to mix up your training routine to find that extra gear, yeah, that extra yeah, level. Yeah, sure. And they know, Athletes know that. Yeah. So you got to train differently. And so I come in and I act as their sounding board. I'm part coach, part consultant, advisor, mentor, cheerleader, button pusher to sort of like someone we know. Right. Yep, <laughs> and I help them, you know, see the picture. I'm not in their movie, so I'm not at work. So I can be objective. I'm confidential and I can help them reach that next level. I work with a lot of them. And trying to maximize their energy, how, how they can show up as a leader to build the culture that they're looking for, that trusting culture. I also help them change the conversation that they're having with, those, with themselves, right? That inner talk, that mm-hmm. self-talk and the conversations that they, they have with others. Because when you look at culture at work, I often ask them like, well, hey, what drives your culture, buddy? You know, and they're like, what do you mean? I go, well, what creates your culture? And most leaders haven't really thought about what actually makes that happen. And we start to, you know, peel back the layer of the onion. I'm like, well, first off, it's the health of our relationships, right? Then I ask them, well, what what makes a healthy relationship healthy? And it comes down to the health of our conversations. Our best relationships that we have in life and at work are all driven by the most awesome conversations, right? Yeah. They're trusting their co-creation in mind. Sometimes inspiring, yeah. It's all that, right? And so the better our conversations, the better our relationships, the better our culture. And when our culture is strong, we can put out better business results. Really cool. And that's what I help leaders do.
1: So I'm not going to ask you more questions about that only because I don't want to like give away all of your
0: your business secrets no, here. No problem. Um, but you're also coming, you just came out with a book, right? I'm about to. So it's coming out next, well, next month. Actually, I think the first day of selling it will be on the anniversary of my last bad day. Cool. So I'll make it available. I have an initial print. That's a VIP special edition that will be available through my website. And then we'll do the Amazon and the traditional way of okay. doing it. So it's a story about my last bad day, the recovery, the spirit of my Peloton, and the last chapter, I give people 20 ways of showing up, 20 ways of being in order to create that success that they want at work and in life. Well, so, I'm going to
1: buy that book, so. Yeah. It's uh.
0: orange, so it's it's my color. So, <laughs> um, so, but yeah, initially from my last bad day until we you know, set up our Amazon account, I'll have them all autographed and it's a limited edition run. And it looks, I think, pretty freaking cool. I think it does too. I'm yeah, pretty yeah, jazzed about it. And it took a Peloton to write it. And, uh, and everyone that I sell is part of my Peloton. And the, the cool thing about it is all the profit will be going back to two cycling advocacy organizations. So I wrote it for my girls because they don't remember much of my recovery in the initial stages. Wrote it for anyone who wants to get inspired and motivated and looking to shift their perspective. But I also wanted to create a win. So when someone buys it, all the profits go back to helping other people across the planet.
1: Sounds perfect for people who listen to this podcast. Yeah.
0: So it's not, I didn't write it to be again, famous. I didn't write it to make a lot of money or market my business. I wrote it to spread the message and to help people and sort of in the spirit of like everyday heroes. Right. Uh, Cause I, I just wanted to be an everyday hero for my girls. Cool. And I think that's you what. you are, yeah. And I think that's what most people are looking to do in their lives. And most people are not looking to be Tony Robbins or Oprah. They just want to be a kick-ass dad or kick-ass mom, for sure.
1: So, while we're on the topic again, where can people like find you? Like, are you on social media? What's your
0: website? Yeah. So Instagram, I just got onto Instagram, so I don't have too many followers. So I'll follow you. If you want to follow me on Instagram, I would love that. I'll link it up in the show notes for anyone listening. um, So I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. My website is pelotoncc.net. Okay. So P-E-L-O-T-O-N-C-C.net.
1: Is that the same – or what's your, like, handle on Instagram?
0: So Instagram is Michael O'Brien Shift. Got it. All right, cool. I'll link
1: it up, so no one needs to, like, write that down right now. Uh, But – just as we kind of wrap it up a little bit, I wanted to talk about a recent crash that was in uh, yeah. the tour of California. I'm going to butcher this name, but Tom's
0: scums. Yeah. I'm going to let you run with that name because yeah. I don't know I, how to pronounce it. Either. I like looked up
1: videos and even the videos is like kind of hard to hear how they pronounce it. But um, anyway, can you kind of just explain to the audience uh, w- what happened in this crash and kind of the uh, protocol or lack of protocol that happened?
0: Yeah. So that w- it was a, b- a brutal crash. So second stage, The Tour of California. Tour of California is one of our versions of the Tour de France in America. Sponsored by Amgen, the biotech company. Great race. I've been out to watch it. This
1: was what, like three days ago
0: or two days ago? It was actually a second stage. So this happened two days ago, you know, since we're recording it today. Coming into the finish, he was, was downhill. He just lost his wheels, crashed, hit his left side really hard, hit his head. And he popped up and like any cyclist in a crash or athlete, you know, right. Yeah. You're like, Oh, I got to get back into it. I got to, you know, and he's just on autopilot and, but he's totally disoriented. Right. So when you see the video footage, he's stumbling and stammering across the road. Other cyclists are coming down, barely missing him. And he gets back on the bike and he's wobbly at best.
1: He almost like runs it out of the curb. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah it's just and
1: so – I'll link this video up in the show notes too for anyone.
0: And so his team car was not in sight just based on where he was in the race. And so you had neutral support helping him get back on the bike. And they just didn't see the signs and symptoms of his concussion. So
1: like who are these guys who are these like neutral support people? Because I was thinking, I'm like, these guys should be like athletic trainers or something. Like people who can diagnose like injuries yeah, like this. Yeah, they,
0: they – so – there's a motorcycle driver, and the guy on back is usually just a bike mechanic. So they're not necessarily trained, for the most part, to notice concussion syndrome. And hey, most cyclists, you know, and again, for, for a lot of sports, we want to get back in the game, right? It's a tough, gritty breed of people, yeah. And that's what he wanted to do. And he actually had a he has a broken collarbone and a lot of road rash, but that concussion, he was. He was definitely impaired and should not have gotten back on the bike. Right now, what, it was like scary to watch. What What, what did happen though is that the because they have radios on all the cyclists and radios in all the cars. So word got back to his car, his team car, his basically his manager. His manager radioed the team. Uh, sorry, the race official in charge of the race and was able to get Tom's off the bike and pull him from the race. So he was a DNF for the whole race, but that was the best decision for his overall health. And, but I would say I've seen some reports in commentary on his accident and some of the old school commentators, right? So in most sports, it's yeah. like the guys that are retired. Like back in the day we would just rub Yeah, we would just yeah. we would just rub dirt on it and get going. That's you know? part of the problem, yeah. And so when they were describing it, it's like, oh yes, he has a bit of road rash and a broken shoulder. He'll be he'll be off the bike for a few days and they'll be back at it. And like, dude, he had a major concussion. He's gonna be off the bike for several weeks. And A and, bad one too. And he should be off the bike for several weeks. Right. Um just to foul concussion protocol and cycling definitely has a you know concussion protocol it's I don't think it's as mature as it is in the NFL or in some other sports and in hockey but hey head injuries when you're hey when you're racing your bike that quickly and those guys are going down those hills at close to 60 miles an hour in some cases so imagine you're going down a hill In this case, I think it was going about 45. You're going down a hill 45 miles an hour, and your tire is basically 23 millimeters in length or in in width. It's like, you know, you hit something just slightly off. It's like you're you're going down, and a lot of times you do hit your head.
1: Right. I think in terms of, like, protocol for cycling, I was thinking about this leading up to this interview. It's kind of like a tough sport for, like – You know how, like, in football, there's an athletic trainer on the field. Athletic trainer saved my life. Like, I had, like, direct access, like, to the athletic trainer. If you're in a bike race, like, you're all over the place. Like You can't have someone hovering around you the entire time, or maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe that's, like, the next step in terms of, like, health and safety in the sport. Like, I don't know how realistic that really is. But you need to have someone that could, like, save the athlete from themselves because you know, like, we want to get back on the bike or get back out on the field. So, like, you need to have that, like – voice of conscious to be like no you're not you like you're seriously injured you know not have the guy the
0: mechanic on the back like oh yeah get back yeah. on there you know like and just watch them swerve down the road yeah well so in every major race there is a car with a medical professional or a couple of medical professionals following the race okay so the hard thing about cycling is that the playing field is is can stretch for miles, right? So on football, it's a hundred yards, right? And in basketball and hockey and baseball, it's the field. You see all the players. In a cycling race, just the way it is, you can have riders a few minutes up the road, right? And at their speeds, that's like a mile. It could be two miles up the road and your team car or the medical car is five minutes behind you, right? So they don't see you, right? So this is why radios and pro cycling, are so important. It has a way of communicating with each other. Back in the day, there were no radios. So something happened up the road. No one knew about it. (laughs) So, and the radios, I think today make the sports safer. Okay. Now some old school people are like, well, that wasn't the case back when I was, you know, the day back in the day too, they rode. Bikes that were 23 pounds made of steel. And they right? didn't wear helmets. And they didn't wear helmets, right? And so, and people don't... wear those like, little hats with the little yeah, flip-up. Yeah, or, the, or the, like, the leather, like, hairnet thing. And like, oh, yeah, that's safe, right? Yeah. Um, So, there is a medical professional following the race, but the real challenge with cycling is that your playing field can stretch for miles because you have maybe a breakaway, you have the Peloton, and then you have people who have gotten dropped. So... The lead rider and the last rider, it can be a difference of 15 minutes before right. they finish, right?
1: So in terms of this particular incident like incident in the Tour of California, yep. what do you think could have been done to make sure that that guy didn't get back on his bike, if there's anything?
0: Well, I totally believe in when you know better, you do better, right? And so everyone... Hey everyone in the race, in my opinion, I'm stretching the you know definition of peloton to outside just a cyclist. So the team cars, the mechanics, the neutral support, even the fans watching, we all have a responsibility. And so I think training those mechanics to look out for concussion syndrome symptoms and tell them no and give them the autonomy or authority, to make that call if it's in the best interest of the rider's health. Right. The, the tough thing about most sports, right? There's a lot of money involved. Exactly. That's the problem, yeah. And careers are limited. So people try to push it. And, and I think that's probably the tough thing for the neutral support. They don't necessarily have the authority. They have the authority to change someone's back wheel or give them a new bike, but they don't necessarily have the authority to say this rider can't go on. Right. Maybe they should. It's probably worth – it's worth the conversation exactly. just, to keep, just to keep riders as safe as possible.
1: And that's why I wanted to bring it up just to start the conversation to see what what, what options are out there. Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm going to wrap this interview up with a question that I usually finish with. I'm big on this like toughness idea we just talked about like – Obviously, there's a culture of toughness in cycling as well. So, and I believe that the severity of my injury was due to me trying to live up to this idealization of what I conjured up in my head of what toughness was when I was 17. Yeah. Um, so, I'm curious about what your definition of toughness is.
0: I think for me, toughness is about resilience and perseverance and playing the long game. The long game. I like that. You know, for me, it's it's about the journey. That you know, there's no destination. I think in life, but it's it's showing up every day, trying to get a little bit better. And so, for me, I came up with a mantra. You know, and this goes back to the days with Laura, that I was going to work really hard today. It was all about grit to make tomorrow better. So I was like, so I was going to, you know, bend my knee one more degree, and one more degree was you know, it took a lot of effort. I got premedicated and they pushed on me and to get that one degree. And so I got one degree made tomorrow better show up tomorrow, get one more degree. Then it would make the next day better. And so that grit, resilience, perseverance to me, that's being tough. That's perfect,
1: dude. I really like that. Michael, thank you for taking the time and to, thanks for having to come on the podcast and share your story. And, um, I really liked your insight and everything that you're doing with Peloton and your company. I think it's really cool and perfect for our audience. So everyone who's listening, uh, go out, buy his book, uh, give him a follow. Give him a few more followers on Instagram. Uh, We'll try to help you out with that. And uh, thanks again. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. So
0: awesome.